Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Tuesday Night Rheumatology, uh, a rehash of Room Now Live 2021. I'm joined by one of our faculty from Room Now Live, Dr. Jeff Sparks from the Brigham and Women's. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Jack. Good to see you. Yeah, glad to. This is unusual. We have as our co-moderators the two people who are giving the talks. Guess what our reviews of our talks are going to be? I'm thinking two thumbs up. That would be four <laughs> thumbs up. Yep, I'll give it two. <laughs> Why not? Okay, so um, let's begin um, with a little bit of polls. I want everyone to know that, again, Tuesday Night Rheumatology from now until um, the 2nd of June is going to be replays of excerpts from Room Now Live. This week, it's RA and lung. Next week, it's spondyloarthritis. Um, the week after, it's another session on RA with Stan Cullen and Jeff Curtis talking about liver, but more importantly about vaccination uh, and COVID. Uh, and then we're going to end with Michelle Petrie and colleagues on the 2nd of June talking about lupus topics. So um, we encourage you to give us your questions. Um, use the Q&A um, uh, feature here to... Um, to, to put your questions on. We'll get around to them uh, in between the sessions and at the end of the session. Um, let's begin with a polling question of the audience. Let's uh, just by begin by telling us who you are. So I am, who are you? Are you a rheumatologist, a nurse practitioner, or physician assistant, another physician who shall be nameless, other healthcare providers, trainees, others, we just don't get enough others, but we know you others are out there. Oh, good. We have one other. We'll have to find out more about the others. <laughs> okay. So um, maybe two more answers. That would give us 100% of people online. All right. They're getting their coffee ready. So let's end the polling, and we'll show you those results later on. Um, let me share the results, I guess, right now. Um, all right, so let's um, uh, put this away. And now we're gonna get into um, a share screen. We're gonna start our lecture. So I'm our first speaker. My name is Jack Cush, UT Southwestern. I'm gonna be talking about RA and pneumonia, um, an important subject, an important comorbidity um, to have lung disease and RA. The consequences of that are often disastrous, which is really the whole um, impetus for this session at Room Now Live. So. Let's begin with that. We'll come back in about 15, 12, 15 minutes, and we'll take a few questions um, from you, the audience. Here we go. To consider and understand pneumonia, you need to understand pneumonia in the general population, not in rheumatoids. So that would be called community-acquired pneumonia, or CAP. This is, I think, a very important study. I've shown it before to many of you. It's 11,000 elderly people over the age of 65. Again, there's no RA, there's no arthritis here. And the question is, what leads to them getting pneumonia? Uh, and the rate just in the elderly is 14 per 1,000 patient years, uh, and that's an important number. If, if you are, in, again, everybody here is elderly, but if you happen to also be immunocompromised, that number goes up almost threefold. If you have chronic lung disease or you're on chronic long-term steroids, that goes up almost fourfold. And this is important when you consider, again, does this apply to RA patients? Well, again, for those patients who did develop pneumonia, the fatality rate was different depending on whether you're an outpatient pneumonia, which is about one-third to uh, half in some cases of all pneumonias. Inpatient was 15%. If you're ICU hospitalized, chance of dying was 40%. 
Now, I like to show this data in, uh, juxtaposed to data from Fred Wolf in the National Data Bank, and that's shown here. His study of 16,000 patients showed that the average number of pneumonias in a rheumatoid population is 17 per 1,000 patient years. And yes, you have the same two to three to fourfold increase in uh, this event rate based on whether someone's older, on steroids, or having comorbidities, including lung disease as a comorbidity. So pneumonia, the risk is driven by age, severity of disease, steroids, and comorbidity. So if you compare the, what happens with pneumonia, there's two studies I have here. One is a single center study of, um, of 71 RA patients versus control. The other one's a larger population study of 1,200 uh, RA patients versus 5,200 controls. The bottom line is that the risk factors for pneumonia were age, being female, having underlying disease, which was seen in 72% of patients. If you had underlying disease and RA, you were less likely to receive methotrexate and biologics, meaning those were not the factors that led to someone getting pneumonia. Steroids and immunosuppressive use was a, 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 a risk factor in this one study. What about the mortality? The two studies had two different outcomes. The first study, the smaller single center study, showed that RA patients had more deaths, 11% versus 5%, and more likely if you had pre-existing lung disease. So uh, they surmised that RA itself was an independent risk factor for mortality um, in patients who developed uh, pneumonia. The second study showed RA patients overall did not have a greater rate of mortality. However, when they had a high CRP of greater than 20, it was a five-fold higher risk of mortality. If they had were on prednisone, it was a three-fold risk of mortality. Now, are they on prednisone and on high-dose steroids because their, their pneumonia is really bad or because their RA is really bad? They didn't go into that, but those clearly have seem to be recurrent themes. There are other risk factors that come up. Seropositivity, this is actually one of these studies, the one in the bottom right is actually from Jeff Curtis from ACR this year. But the interesting thing about pneumonia and seropositivity is that we do have um, lung involvement that can lead to the generation of autoantibodies. There's um, some preclinical RA studies of patients who don't yet have RA, but one, they have inflammatory activity in their lungs and they generate CCP antibodies and rheumatoid factors also from what's going on in their lungs. The question I'm going to pose that's a little different than that is for people with disease, being rheumatoid factor positive with RA, does that get you more pneumonia? And the answer is yes. And interestingly, not CCP as much as rheumatoid factor. So in this particular study that, Je that Jeff uh, did, it's a cohort analysis, he showed a twofold higher risk um, uh, uh, an adjusted hazard ratio 2.15 when you were rheumatoid factor positive. CCP did factor in there, but it didn't seem to add much to the story. Um, moreover, patients who are seropositive have a higher risk of dying from pneumonia. So this is looking at um, the risk of death in a nurse's health study and what caused that. You can see obviously if you had lung disease and you were likely to die, a pulmonary mortality, but also almost as high was being seropositive or rheumatoid factor as opposed to being seronegative. So seropositivity in, seems to play a role. Maybe it reflects the severity of RA. So the question then becomes, you know, there are other factors. We know smoking is a, is a risk factor, right? So what about, and most of you are actually quite good at counseling your patients on smoking, but if, you, they, if they do quit smoking, are they afforded any protection? So the question is, if the patient has quit smoking 30 years ago 
is the risk of incident RA no longer increased. We do note smoking increases the risk of developing RA. So this is another polling question, true, false. Answer now. Let's see if this works. Oh, yeah. There we go. The polling woke up. So you've been off cigarettes for 30 years. Do you still have a risk of developing RA? Survey says? It is like 50-50, almost. 52 true. That's a fabulous question. Fabulous question. And I'll tell you the answer right quick, as we say here in Texas. So the answer is false. There is improvement. Things do get better, but you never fully resolve that risk, even though you've been off of it for 30 years. So we do know that smoking is a risk factor for developing RA. Um, we do know that smoking is a risk factor for more severe RA, and that goes to, um, again, uh, the shared epitope and the, and the role of smoking um, in patients who are, are CCP positive with the shared epitope. Um, patients who have established RA, you'd think they would be smart and not smoke? Wrong. Established RA patients actually have a 50% higher incidence of being current smokers. And that's a reason why you always have to ask about smoking um, or look at their fingernails to see if, if they have smokers' fingers. Uh, obviously, again, smoking will increase the risk of hospitalizations with, with a subsequent um, risk of cardiovascular and respiratory outcomes. And then what happens? If you stop smoking, there's good data that patients will improve their PFDs, will improve their survival numbers. Um, in, in RA patients who stop smoking, it does lower disease activity. It is a measure for lowering, and it's not right away. It does take, uh, you know, really years for that to happen, but not too, too many years. For each year off, there's a 15% uh, or 25% uh, less um, um, uh, risk of respiratory or cardiovascular hospitalizations, respectively. And like I said, if you quit 30 years ago, uh, it does lower the risk of getting RA by 37%, but it never truly goes away. You know you have patients with COPD and RA. This is also bad. The bottom line being pre-existing lung disease puts RA patients at a perilous situation. Bad things are going to happen. They're going to have more infections and more bad outcomes. This applies to both uh, asthma and RA. The uh, graph on the upper right really shows you that patients, um, basically everybody here in all these studies, have an increased risk of uh, an association, RA patients having COPD. So that's out there. Um, what happens when it comes to RA and COPD? It's estimated somewhere between 6 and 10% of RA patients will have COPD, and then they themselves will have a higher risk of hospitalization, of pneumonia. Uh, and by the way, that's not really affected by background therapy, including the more aggressive recent therapies. And clearly, a higher risk of, of death. Uh, shown here on the bottom right, the patients who are COPD positive compared to those who don't have COPD, uh, they're much more likely to die, and again, a 50%, 60% uh, higher risk over the next 10 years if they have COPD. So we mentioned before that, um, uh, that there are risk factors for serious infections events, and the number one would be pneumonia. The best predictor of those is, first, RA activity. And by that, I mean inflammation as measured by a CRP or measured by many swollen joints. It also includes debility. These are, and this is the prime driver of infectious risk and also of pneumonia. Steroids, as we've said, and I'm going to show you, in, many, in any dose is a risk factor. And then comorbidities. We always talk about comorbidities, but the 
the biggest one is chronic lung disease. In any form, boop, COPD, ILD, it doesn't really matter. This is the bad one. This is the one you really need to worry about. Heart failure, diabetes, yes, we all know about that. The skin, when you break it down, uh, you get more ulcers, more wounds, you know, surgery, you open up the skin. Skin is your number one barrier to infection, not surprising. The bottom line is that there's very little risk imposed by our biologics and newer drugs and, and even conventional DMARDs, but yet when someone, an RA patient, you know, on a JAK inhibitor is admitted to the hospital and dies, everyone says, oh, he was immunosuppressed. No, it was the RA. It was the 11 milligrams of steroids. It was, you know, having open, you know, malleolar ulcer and then having background COPD that killed the person, much more so than the drug. But there is a role for the drugs in, in causing pneumonia, and we'll, we'll review that in the next slide. First, this data from Paul Emery, which I think was very instructive going back almost 10 years now. It's from the British Biologics Registry, and he showed comparing patients in that registry on either a DMARD or etanercept. The graph on the right says it didn't matter which drug that you were on, that you had an increase in the rate of serious infections based on the increase in the DAS score. And it was the same for DMART and etanercept. So the biologic didn't make it any worse here. And for every one point increase in DAS score, so a DAS from three to four, there was a 17% increase in the risk of serious infectious events. Very instructive to underscore that point. I think maybe one of the papers of the year could be this paper in Annals of Internal Medicine. It comes from Jeff Curtis and, and George and colleagues where they analyze two different databases, both a, um, a commercial database and Medicare database. Over here it's Medicare on top. Over here it's the Optum uh, database. And you can see over here patients not on glucocorticoids, the rate of hospitalization for infection was 8.6%. If you're on glucocorticoids, any dose, it was higher than that. And then when you look at the forest plots, the bad news is, you know, compared to none, patients on 5 milligrams have a higher risk of, of serious infectious events and hospitalizations. Okay, and, and this, again, most of this is all pneumonia. So, again, we need to worry about steroids at any dose and get to as low or maybe none when it comes to steroids. So you all see this patient. This is actually another polling question. What is the risk of this patient developing an SIE like pneumonia in the next 12 months? 62-year-old female with COPD and prior pneumonia has been treated with six prior DMAR, DMARDs in bio, or biologics, now has six swollen and tender joints. Um, it has a HACA 1.2, taking leflunamide and 15 milligrams of prednisone. In the next year, one year, what is the risk that this person is going to develop pneumonia? You can answer now. It's either 1, 3%, 2, 7%. 3, 15%, 4, 28%, 5, 39%. So let's see what the, the audience says. And I'm telling you what their risk is right now on those drugs. Okay. Everybody liked the, lowest, the lower ones, um, but you're pretty much split, which means that uh, only 22% of you are right. Oh, actually, I think it's 9%. Uh, I can't remember. Let's go to the slide. The answer is number four. 9% of you are right because the right answer is 28%. This data comes from um, the rabbit registry. This is a, 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 a rabbit registry calculator where you can calculate your patient's infectious risk for a pneumonia or a serious infectious event in the next year based on a few factors. And again, they, have, they, they developed this on over 10,000 patients and then tested it against another 10,000 patients and verified that this, in fact, works. 
you can predict the outcome based on the age, use of prednisone, the number of prior DMARDs, prior SIE, meaning that you have a prior pneumonia because you're likely to get another one next time around, and current biologic. You can see that in the next 12 months, this patient on top has a 28% chance of developing pneumonia. Now, you put this patient also on a TNF inhibitor, uh-oh, it goes up to 45%. This is the scenario where adding a biologic will increase your risk after every, all the other thing, bad things are in play. And that is shown here from, from also their, their data. And just look at the first row across the bottom, the gray bars. And they have three groups, steroids less than 15% or 7%, then 7 to 15% in the middle, and then greater than 15%. And there really is not much difference. If you add in a biologic, which is the second of the, two, of the pair, there's almost a little bit of a doubling there. And so it's inconsequential in people who have no additional risk factors. But add in additional risk factors. And that's age, lung disease, renal disease, number of prior treatments and prior serious infections, and go to the back row in, in, in maroon there, and now you add a biologic in, and this is where the risk takes off. This is where the guidelines aren't helpful, because the guidelines tell you the patient had a prior SIE and what you should do when they're really sick. You know, they tell you not to use a TNF inhibitor, but, you know, who's to say that, that they're not going to do better or they're going to do better by being on a triple DMART therapy? which may not control the inflammation, and inflammation also drives risk, it's really complicated. I'm not saying there's a right answer here, but it's not so quickly answered by the guidelines. And there are other pneumonias. I just want to keep you, you, you to keep in mind that there's a lot out there about other pneumonias. Pneumocystis, is a lot written about it, although I'm sure in this room we might have two cases amongst, you know, the, the 40 uh, rheumatologists who are in the room and the, and the 300 who are at home then we might have a few, but it's very uncommon. I'll tell you the risk factor for pneumocystis amongst RA, the number one risk factor is uh, rituximab use. So those are the patients who you should have in the back of your head. Rituximab, hmm, this could be uh, a PJP infection. Uh, it is uh, more common in certain areas of the world. It's thought there are some data out there saying being on sulfazalazine and maybe hydroxychloroquine can lower the risk. Uh, I'm not, I do not advocate our patients should be on, uh, including patients on rituximab, should be on background um, uh, anti-infective therapy like with Bactrim. But if there's someone's at high risk because they have other risk factors, then maybe that does make sense. The number one non-TB opportunistic infection, and even bigger than TB, is non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection what we used to call atypical mycobacterial, in every study I've ever seen, whether normal people, cancer patients, RA patients, those are more common, much more common than TB. And you should be working those people up or considering that diagnosis if you're considering TB. Fungal infections, in the pre-learn, there was a nice map of the histo belt from Ohio down to Texas uh, and Arkansas. Um, Coccidioido in the, in the southwest where um, Artie is, again, there it's pulmonary, bone, lung, skin. <clears throat> there really aren't great tests for it. It really has to be a clinical diagnosis, so supported by culture. The antibody testing is not that good. There's Legionella, there's also Nocardia, and there's also, you know, drug-induced pneumonitis like methotrexate, but that should not be hard to identify. Turn my microphone back on. So a few things we need to um, cover. First, uh, a number of you noticed that the slide was a little blurry, and I'm not really sure why that was. I might try doing a different 
video feed for Jeff's presentation. Hopefully, they'll have a little more clarity. I can see the slide, and Jeff, uh, the, the bottom bar, you couldn't make out the citation very well. Something wrong with that. My apologies for that. I also have my apologies. Uh, Jeff, I, I gave Jeff Curtis credit for the paper that you did on, on CCP and, and, and pneumonia risk. That was the one figure in the bottom right. Okay, it's, it's good to get uh, confused with him. Good company. <laughs> well, yes, you guys can. If you guys share CVs, I mean, my goodness, uh -huh. uh, that, that alone. And then there was a little confusion around that case of uh, uh, going on a biologic, you know, that had COPD. Uh, actually, the rheumatologist got the answer right. Um, the most common answer was 28%. Um, and it had to do with the way it was presented that I confused it during the presentation. But still, there were only 30% or so, 34% got it right. The others did not, meaning that that risk is really quite high. So um, I want to just, just quickly give a, a little poll here and see if you um, want to um, try another one here. Let's see. Let's stop this one. Let's do this particular poll here. Which of the following is not a risk factor for pneumonia in RA? So let's take a few seconds and then, um, and then we'll discuss this. This whole topic of pneumonia um, um, occurring in RA and being a bad player in RA um, really ties in very well with Jeff's presentation, which has to do with um, um, the relationship between RA and ILD and what the risk factors there are. Um, because again, these are the big setups for basically bad outcomes in our, in our patients. Uh, we need about 10 more answers on this poll. Um, what to the following is not a risk factor. And um, okay, I'm going to stop it right there. Thank you very much for your participation. Um, Jeff, can you see those results? Yes, I can. Okay, good. So obviously everyone got pretty much got it right. Abatacept is not a risk factor for pneumonia. Lung disease would be, prednisone would be, prior pneumonias is the big one that everyone, I want everyone to remember, and obviously the elderly. Um, drug, other than prednisone, Jeff, are there any drugs that really are risk factors for pneumonia? Well, you know, I think just the, the part and parcel slight immunosuppression that goes with any drug that we use is probably balanced out a bit just by uh, lowering systemic inflammation. So I think probably it's a wash. Um, nothing stands out from my mind. Yeah, I, yeah I, I agree. I don't, I don't know that there's anything out there. Um, Jeff, you have a paper in, in publication just recently about the um, rheumatoid, being seropositive in preclinical RA um, is a risk factor for RA patients also developing COPD. So I think about it both ways. I mean, your, your paper talks about RA patients getting COPD, which we then know makes RA kind of worse in many ways. And then we do know that um, if you have COPD and then you also get RA, that COPD colors RA. So anyway, um, what's your spin on that? What seems to be bi-directional relationship between COPD? Yeah. Does it apply to other lung diseases in RA? Um, well, uh, as I think you touched upon, there is this interesting paradigm about, you know, airway and mucosal inflammation in the lung is being an initiating site of RA antibodies, in particular ACPA, maybe rheumatoid factor and other antibodies too. Um, so that kind of got us interested in airways disease and things like asthma and, and COPD. 
Um, and obviously the elephant in the room related to COPD is smoking, you know, you know, does smoking cause the COPD, which causes the RA and vice versa. Um, so our studies really tried to think very thoughtfully about how to, you know, control for smoking. Um, and the best we can with our statistical models, obviously you can't do a trial where you're randomizing patients to get COPD or not, but uh, to the best of our abilities, this really seems um, independent of smoking, both status and pack years repeatedly measured throughout many decades of life. Um, and it is really pretty interesting that it's a bi-directional relationship where COPD patients are more likely to get RA. And if you have RA, you're more likely to get COPD. And obviously I think having both is bad news as far as many types of outcomes. Yeah, I think, you know, some of the work of Mike Kohler's and, and some others pointing to the lung as being, you know, um, a really early player in RA pathogenesis and inflammation in the lung being an early player. And it's, and it's not all smoke, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's a lot more than that. And I think that's, um, um, it's not surprising that a lot of current rheumatology fellows are very interested in that the interplay between lung disease and, and rheumatoid arthritis or rheumatology. Um, so let's go on to our, our second talk, which is going to be about um, rheumatoid arthritis associated interstitial lung disease. We happen to have the co-host and speaker on hand. Um, so I'm going to show you another um, version of the video. It looks a little blurry again. So again, listen to the story. Um, try not to get the Show must the, go on. <laughs> exactly. All right. Here we go. Um, Dr. Jeff Sparks. So really, RAILD really kind of lives analogous to this sort of category of uh, idiopathic interstitial pneumonias, except they have an underlying disease. But really, within RAILD, this framework um, really has sort of a same uh, uh, dichotomy where the uh, the uh, IPF version with NRA is sort of usual interstitial pneumonia, which is typically more fibrotic. And then you have a grab bag of the different non-IPF um, ILDs. So here's sort of one of the, the main take-home slides about RAILD and subtypes. First off, at least half of RAILD is typically usual interstitial pneumonia or UIP. And that's actually pretty easy to remember. It's usual, so it's more common, and it's the most common subtype of RALD occurring 50, 60% of patients that have RALD. And it's typically a fibrotic pathogenesis. Uh, the second most common subtype is NSIP, or nonspecific interstitial pneumonia. And that comprises 30 to 40% of, of RALD, and it has subtypes, confusingly, called cellular NSIP and fibrotic NSIP. And right off the bat, you can see that there probably is some overlap between these. There's a little bit of blurring of edges and not every, necessarily everyone fits neatly into these categories. Um, and so certainly there could be patients that have a fibrotic NSIP or UIP or both in, 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 in combination. And this is why having a multidisciplinary approach to diagnosis is helpful because having a pulmonologist who really is used to thinking about the classification, having radiologists the chest radiologist with expertise, pathologist who, um, to try to put everything together to draw the, try to really categorize your patient correctly. Um, so the other um, subcategories would be desquamative interstitial pneumonia or DIP, which is typically smoking related, respiratory bronchiolitis or RB, 
which is also typically smoking related. And then diffuse alveolar damage. These are patients that typically present pretty dramatically, often with pulmonary hemorrhage and you know, may be critically ill. Um, luckily, this doesn't occur that often in RA, but can happen. Uh, organizing pneumonia, which has sort of more like infiltrates compared to the other ILDs, um, and then lymph lymphoid interstitial pneumonia. And it's also important to remember that your patient might have other etiologies on top of this. So smoking, inhalants, certainly gastroesophageal reflux disease that, you know, can have some, you know, acid actually have a chemical pneumonitis, infection from our drugs and other things. Certainly our patients can get malignancy and overlap syndromes. And so we're doing a lot less lung biopsies now, but it is sometimes needed for ambiguous CT chest imaging that, um, you know, just you got to know that the, the CT chest is not necessarily going to be the end-all, be-all. So, again, I really want to, you know, take away about UIP and NSIP of being the two most pre prevalent um, subtypes of RILD. Uh, and here's an example of UIP. I gave you one that's very obvious that probably everyone would have already known, but, you know, the buzzwords on a, on a report would be scarring, reticulation, mosaicism, traction bronchiectasis, and honeycombing. And again, this is a fibrotic process, so there's less inflammation. There's going to be less likely to have, you know, ground glass and other inflammatory features on chest imaging. NSIP, on the other hand, is a bit more inflammatory. So you're going to find ground glass opacities. Um, it also seems to have a predominance of lower lobe volume loss and reticulonodular opacities. Um, and again, there's certainly overlap on chest imaging. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but actually I think this is coming up a bit more often, um, this entity called COPA syndrome. Um, this is in the COPA gene, which stands for the copy coat complex subunit alpha. I, I mention this because these patients have a very um, uh, chronic and sometimes dramatic course that's uh, characterized by inflammatory arthritis, fever, interstitial lung disease, and kidney dysfunction, and they often have autoantibodies including rheumatoid factor and CCP. So these often do end up in a rheumatologist's office. Um, family history is common. You know, it's, the textbooks say that it typically presents in adolescence, but I have seen adults that have presented with it. And often these patients are sick and they don't really respond like you would think. And um, so just think about this entity as sort of an underlying genetic syndrome. Um, you know, maybe on the spectrum of rheumatoid arthritis, but really has its own separate pathogenesis and is really difficult to treat. Okay, so now I wanted to talk about RAILD outcomes, and this is why this is one of the most feared extraarticular manifestations of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, so the first thing to just remember is that RA is a chronic disease, is associated with excess mortality, um, and this seems to be more pronounced in seropositive RA. You can see the numbers from a study that we did a few years ago that overall patients with RA have a 40% increased risk for death compared to, patient, to the general population, and that this is really much more dramatic for the seropositive version of RA with rheumatoid factor or CCP with a 51% increased risk. Um, and I think this is where there's been a lot of progress in, in the respiratory components of, of rheumatoid arthritis is that 10, 15 years ago, everyone was thinking only about cardiovascular disease. But actually, when you look at a relative risk, respiratory mortality is really the thing that's much more dramatically different than the general population compared to cardiovascular mortality. And certainly, cardiovascular disease mortality is a big deal. It's a big public health issue. And 
from an absolute scale, this is still the number one killer for rheumatoid arthritis patients. But from a, re from a relative risk perspective, there's a twofold increased risk for, for respiratory mortality of RA patients compared to the general population. And interestingly, this seems to be specifically for seropositive patients who have nearly a threefold increased risk for respiratory mortality compared to the general population. And certainly, RALD is a major contributor to that. And as another topic, there's been other um, airways disease and other uh, respiratory uh, issues with RA that can also contribute to that beyond just ILD. Um, but, you know, probably most of you might be familiar with this seminal paper from 2007 from the Mayo Clinic and Bungarts and all um, that really carefully found all the incident RA-ILD within the Mayo Clinic population. And they actually found that the median survival was less than three years after RA-ILD diagnosis. So, you know, really increased mortality. Some other studies have followed up that um, and, you know, luckily for our patients, the survival seems to be improving, or maybe we're detecting less severe cases, but um, probably more recent studies show a, a median survival about eight years after RA-ILD detection. Um, but certainly it's a really, you know, increased risk compared to other RA patients. Um, we just did a, a, a recent study looking at mortality after RA-ILD in the Medicare population, and we found that... Uh, the risk for mortality was increased by about 70%. Other studies have found it even higher, but certainly these patients are at a high risk for poor outcomes. And this is not explained by smoking. Uh, our studies in particular, we've accounted for smoking. And you would expect this to really um, affect respiratory mortality, which we see there as a fourfold increased risk. But interestingly, our recent studies showed that RALD patients are also at risk for cancer mortality, suggesting that some of these um, ILD lesions might predispose to cancer or might be sort of early cancerous changes themselves. Um, so these patients are at risk of poor outcomes. But, you know, RALD, as I've already mentioned, is not just one entity. And I think that's why this has been hard to study is that the natural R history of RALD really varies quite significantly based on the, the person, based on their subtype and how aggressive it is and what their threshold is for clinical significance. You, so, um, you know, there's some patients that really present acutely and have a really precipitous decline. This would be this person in red. Some patients are, you know, severely ill, but might present a bit slower, but more monotonically. But then there's patients that have episodes of severity and flare and remission and severity. So, you know, this is nothing new from a rheumatologist perspective that there's a lot of heterogeneity of the, of the, based on the person themselves, as well as probably the, you know, heterogeneous subtypes that are there. And then there's these people that are kind of under the surface and some people might have some mild, mild imaging changes that never causes symptoms. And maybe it just completely goes away Maybe it was due to an occupational exposure or some other environmental. Maybe someone has subclinical changes that seem to be getting slowly worse over time, and you're watching this person and you're wondering, are they ever going to go over this sort of barrier for clinical significance? Um, so certainly this is part of the reason why there needs to be a lot of vigilance, but also take a deep breath and, you know, you know time is sometimes on your side, uh, and obviously research is needed to try to understand where patients fit in these curves. Um, one other thing to keep in mind based on subtype is that the UIP subtype does seem to have a worse prognosis compared to the others for the most part. 
Um, so the UIP is more likely to progress related to pulmonary function tests. There's a threefold higher increased risk for DLCO progression compared to NSIP. Um, and then mortality, which obviously everyone cares about, seems to be increased in this subtype. Um, it was a systematic review, had an increased risk of death for 66% compared to all the other subtypes. Um, however, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, diffuse alveolar damage can present very um, abruptly and can, is uncommon, but can be highly lethal. Okay, so now let's go into RALD risk factors. Um, and I'll mention this is a, you know active research area of our group. And this is sort of a schematic about how the lungs are involved in RA pathogenesis and also about why this might predispose patients to um, interstitial lung disease. And so obviously some genetics will predispose patients to both RA and ILD. Um, and there's inflammation, disruption in the lungs themselves, maybe at other mucosal surfaces. And perhaps there's a neoantigen presentation of citrullination of proteins. And this is, you know, the peptidyl arginine deaminase enzyme um, forms these neoantigens and the body becomes confused and presents these to T cells through the HLA-DRB1 shared epitope, uh, and this activates the immune system to start making antibodies, which then eventually settle into joints and patients present with symptoms. And at some point, they might present with um, pulmonary inflammation as well. Um, and certainly some patients might actually have lung inflammation that precedes the articular um, involvement as well. Uh, so I just want to pause here about a case. Um, this is a 70-year-old man with rheumatoid factor positive, CCP positive RA for 15 years, currently in remission by DAS-28, doing well on hydroxychloroquine, methotrexate, and tilsiluzumab. Uh, he does have 45 years, pack years of smoking, known COPD, and his CRP is normal. So first, I just want you to look to see what are his RA ILD risk factors, to sort of reflect on what the stem's there, and can you find any risk factors? And I'm betting you're going to find a few. Okay, so in the red, I've highlighted the risk factors. So 70-year-old man, so older age, male sex, rheumatoid factor positive, CCP positive. So both of these antibodies, particularly a high titer, seem to predispose patients to RILD. Uh, Long-standing RA, typically over 10 years, can predispose people to RILD. Um, however, being in remission and having a normal CRP seems to be protective. Um, and then 45 pack years of smoking. So probably not a surprise that smoking is related to RAILD, but I'll tell you a bit more about pack years later. Uh, and COPD is also a risk factor, and certainly there might be some patients that might, on paper, seem to have COPD and had RAILD all along. Um, I will say that I did not highlight any of the medications because really the jury's out for a lot of this, but. I think we for sure, and I'll go into this later, that methotrexate does not increase the risk of incident RALD. But overall, it's pretty unclear about how medications can alter the natural history. The other thing I'll note is that I didn't say anything about symptoms. So even though this patient has a lot of risk factors for RALD, it's currently insufficient data to screen for ILD in patients that are asymptomatic. However, this patient would qualify for low-dose chest CT screening based on his uh, Pacquier history. So it certainly would be reasonable to get a low-dose chest CT to screen for lung cancer. And as a side effect, you could also screen for RAILD. 
Um, so here's a, a, a list of sort of things that you would find perhaps in the clinic uh, that are related to RAILD. The first would be male sex. And this is kind of interesting given that, you know, most RA patients are women. So there's a bit of a, a sex paradox in that uh, women are more likely to get RA, but men are more likely to get ILD within RA. Uh, genetics, the MUC5B promoter variant, and I have a slide on that later. And then lifestyle. Um, we recently did a, a, a report that showed that the threshold of 30 pack years seems to be most important for RAILD with an odds ratio of over six compared to never smoking. Uh, we also found that obesity was a risk factor for RAILD, lung comorbidities such as asthma and COPD. And there's a lot of RA characteristics now, older age at RA diagnosis, typically older than 60, uh, longer RA duration, typically 10 or more years, and then having high articular disease activity, a paper that we published recently showing that moderate or high RA disease activity had a hazard ratio of over two compared to remission or low. And along those lines, higher CRP, worse MHAC scores, and high rheumatoid factor and ACPA titers. So there's actually a lot of data that you're collecting routinely that you can already apply to your patients to sort of risk stratify them related to their risk of RAILD. Uh, I did want to take a, a moment to talk about this MUC5B, which is a really exciting development in the RAILD field. Um, so this is a promoter variant of mucin5B, which is basically one of the proteins that's expressed in the airways and alveoli. It kind of acts as sort of a surfactant. Uh, and basically, this promoter variant tells your body to produce a bit more of this MUC5B in greater quantities and probably over-exuberant amount, particularly related to infections or inhalants, is sort of the thought process. Um, regardless of the etiology, this is cer certainly, you know, strongly associated with RAILD, odds ratio of over, um, almost five compared to the general population and then three compared to patients within RA. This is also the same gene... Uh, genetic factor for IPF. So this is very specifically associated with the UIP subtype. So more work needs to be done related to the NSIP subtype. Um, and this, this paper also showed that honeycombed lung tissue with RAILD overexpressed MUC5B. Um, so this is kind of, if you know the shared epitope story, this is kind of like analogous to the shared epitope of RAILD. And um, certainly this is not something we check clinically yet, but uh, there's a lot of research being done about MUC5B, and it's going to be interesting to see whether this could be applied clinically and how it might help us understand uh, treatment paradigms. Okay, so now we'll, we'll veer off into some more clinical topics um, about diagnosis. Um, so here's the same patient, and I've only added that he's now tells you, and maybe after you you know, really doing a thorough review of systems that he has a dry cough and a shorter breath after walking short distances. And the question is, what workup should you pursue? And obviously, I think this is a difficult history. And, you know, one of the um, things about RA is that people who have high disease activity and aren't walking are not going to complain of, of any lung issues. So in your patients with high disease activity, and obviously you're doing a lot of attention to their joints, um, really thinking about their lungs and, you know, what's limiting them as far as ambulation. Is it their joints or is it their deconditioning or is it their lungs to try to think about this? Because certainly there's probably a long period of time where this is sort of smoldering under the surface. Um, and it is a judgment call as far as, you know, when are they really symptomatic versus sort of when are they not? But um, for these purposes, we're going to say that you're suspicious that there could be going something going on. So what workup should you pursue? Well, 
obviously it, it probably um, behooves everyone to not get tunnel vision and just because they have RA and just because they have a lot of risk factors for ILD doesn't mean they don't have anything else. Um, and I don't think I need to read everything on here, but you know, really doing a thorough history and physical, thinking about what other things could be related to their dyspnea and cough, thinking about chronicity, severity, obviously infection, um, certainly some other RA-related lung diseases that are possible. Um, you know, GERD, again, this is a pretty common issue for patients to have GERD contributing to sort of uh, lung issues. Um, so obviously be a great uh, internal medicine doctor and think about all of the other options before you really go down the rabbit hole that is RAILD. Um, so having said that, here's my diagnostic approach. Obviously, I just told you to, have to do a thorough history and physical. Obviously, things that would tip me off to RAILD would be dyspnea, dry cough, chest pain, fatigue. You know, obviously, if they have some low oxygen saturations or high respiratory rate, we'll think about that. And I really do try to do a thorough lung exam, really thinking, looking for rowels and crackles and also looking at clubbing when you're looking for nail pits, um, which do turn up from time to time. So in patients that I'm suspicious of, um, certainly doing an in-office in chest X-ray is pretty straightforward. Um, PFTs, ideally with lung volumes and DLCO, sometimes spirometry enough at the very beginning is okay. Um, and certainly if they have some, you know, borderline oxygen saturations, taking them on a six-minute walk test um, is really of high use to see whether they desat or not, which obviously would really make you think about lung etiologies. Um, and I do have, uh, you know, relatively low threshold for a high-res chest CT. Obviously, I'll say I'm a bit biased because I think so much about this, and we do do it for research purposes, but um, there's so much that can be gained from a high-res chest CT, and really everything else is going to be inadequate to really diagnose this. But obviously, consider a cardiac and GI workup. And the other thing, we're doing a lot less lung biopsies nowadays, but um, it, they are really helpful for diagnostic uncertainty, clinical deterioration, and certainly you can, you know, catch a cancer. You know, you're not going to necessarily catch a cancer on chest CT. Um, you know, thinking about bronchoscopy, BAL, things like that. So having a multidisciplinary approach to try to think about what sort of measures they might do involving pulmonary radiology, pathology. And again, I'll reiterate that there's no current evidence to screen people for RALD who are asymptomatic. Um, so here's some chest X-ray findings that, you know, might be good enough to, to sort of make you you know, think they really have RALD compared to one of the alternate etiologies, but here's some bilateral reticular opacities, some reduced lung volumes. Um, so, um, you know, this can be very helpful. All right, so back to our patient. So what did we do? We did a chest X-ray, we did labs, we did PFTs and a six-minute walk test. I would say that this patient with you know, short of breath, walking short distances, you could definitely think about um, coronary ischemia um, and certainly would be reasonable to go down that pathway and uh, in concert with uh, thinking about RAILD. All right, so management strategy, probably the thing that people really care the most about, and some of the, some, unfortunately we know relatively little about this, and obviously we'll try to help out with uh, uh, getting some trials that will give us some high-quality evidence, but I'll try to go through what sort of my rationale and what my approach is. Um, you know, first is, you know, whether and when to initiate pharmacological therapy. Um, again, this is a multidisciplinary approach at our, at our group, thinking about disease severity, how confident we are with the diagnosis, 
evidence for progression, risk factors for progression, comorbidities, and obviously the patient preference. Um, as far as, you know, how often I monitor people, I'd say at least every six months, um, you know, depending on the rapidity of their clinical course, it might be more often or maybe even less often, but, you know, getting things about symptom measurements and health-related quality of life and PFTs, you know, there's really not a lot of downside to that. Um, so, you know, PFTs are definitely something I like to repeat pretty often. Um, and then the HRCT, I think it is very helpful to repeat those as well as the chest X-ray, uh, often a little bit less often than the other testing just because of the radiation issues. Uh, but certainly, as you know, this does give you some granularity about whether they're kind of stable or at least uh, maybe heading in the wrong direction. Um, and then about uh, changing or escalating treatment, you know, really some of the same issues about are they really progressing? Um, you know, this is the art of medicine like anything else. You know, is the, is, is the treatment helping more than it's hurting and, and all those sorts of things about whether to change or escalate treatment. All right, so here's a 55-year-old woman with RA for two years and she's strongly seropositive on methotrexate and adalimumab. She has a worsening dry cough and dyspnea on exertion. CT chest shows reticular pattern with early signs of honeycombing and is a non-smoker. What medication changes or additions would you offer? Okay, we're back. That was, um, we're going to, first off, apologies for the lack of clarity on the um, slides. Um, I'm not so sure. we're going to go back oh, to that wait, wait, patient. Wait. In fact, I'll just, hi. Sorry about that. Um, if you go to the Room Now store, you can buy the Room Now clarity glasses. <laughs> um, they're on sale after this session. And um, hopefully uh, you'll have those in place for next week's presentation. But um, hopefully uh, that was fairly clear and we'd like you to ask some questions to Jeff and myself, but I'd like to begin with a poll that Jeff left off with. Cliffhanger. I mean, in that particular case, what would you, uh, how would you manage that case uh, as Jeff presented it? So here's the poll, a 55 year old who has seropositive CC, CCP positive RA for two years, has been on methotrexate and adalimumab, now has increasing cough, dyspnea on exertion, on exertion Worsening chest CT, what drug would you offer your patient? Um, and many of you are holding back. This is not easy, uh, and these cases are quite hard. But we'd like to get um, your opinion and then let Jeff um, sort of expound on uh, all of you who had right answers. <laughs> there are probably many right answers here. Yeah. Okay, we're halfway through. Let's get a few more just to make it competitive. Answer now. Uh, okay, this is pretty good. We have almost 70% of people answering this question and that's where we're going to stop. Um, here are the results. Interestingly, wow. nobody voted for Abitacet. Wow. So, Jeff, maybe you want to um, take this apart a little bit. <laughs> um, I'll leave the poll up while you maybe address these. Um, sure, and I would say that there's probably many right answers. Doing nothing might be a right answer. Um, I'll just take each, each option. And actually, a few options that weren't on there would be related to stopping the medications that they're on. Um, in particular, methotrexate is probably people have heard by now, has had a bit of an image makeover. There's been at least three studies that I know about that have all not shown an, an increased risk for ILD. 
Um, and certainly the ACR guidelines draft, at least that were presented last year, um, actually recommend um, patients to continue on methotrexate if, they, if, if we find uh, lung disease. So uh, basically continue they, methotrexate. They did say that if you have stable parenchymal disease. Stable, yeah. Right. So maybe um, a case worsening, because if it stays on, then it's going to confuse the issue. I, yeah, I, this is a debate. So, and we need a trial to really understand, but um, it's definitely had a bit of an image makeover. I'll just say that. Um, and as far as the other meds go that are listed here. Um, so if you really found that this patient had UIP and if you felt they were at high risk of progressing or were progressing, then probably nintendinib would be a very reasonable next step to add on to therapy. Um, and we will have tra uh, trail one results hopefully soon. I think the, they've actually um, have started the analysis on that, which will really be helpful to see that this works in UIP within RA. Um, but certainly MMF would be a reasonable thing to either add or switch therapies. Um, probably a bit more efficacy in sort of the NSIP um, pattern, but would be reasonable. And then rituximab does seem to have a lot of observational data of about how it might have beneficial effects. And actually abatacept, and another one that's not on here is tocilizumab, which has recently shown hints of efficacy for uh, scleroderma ILD and actually got FDA approval for that. And actually steroids are things we do try to avoid, particularly in the fibrotic form of, of, IL, of ILD. Very, so very, a lot of right answers. Yeah, very interesting. You know, um, I think that the, um, the great hope is that um, rituximab would do what all these other drugs haven't done. And really, there's no good studies right now on rituximab. It's all anecdotal. That could be reporting bias. Um, there's a lot of concern there. And you, we don't yet have the right answer. Right. Um, and so maybe any of those would have been good. I think it's important to note what you said about steroids. But is there, first off, nutetinib is not indicator, not, would not be paid for per se um, in this situation because they don't have those trials completed. Um, right. But it's, you know, again, when, when patients are this bad or getting bad, you know, you, you have to pull out all the stops. Um, I guess uh, we have a few questions. Um, let's go to one. Elena Yorns from uh, Dallas here uh, at UT Southwestern uh, asked a question about have genetic studies been done on RAILD patients, meaning or suggesting that would you maybe uncover um, cases of COPA? amongst the patients who have been diagnosed with RA and ILD? Um, we do not typically send it on patients with RA, ILD. Um, I think it is on an Invitae panel. Um, you know, typically patients present at young age, often very dramatically have a follicular bronchiolitis. It's autosomal dominant. So in theory, they should have a family history of it. Often have kidney disease, ANCAs. So uh, it, it's a bit different than sort of RAILD in general. However, I think it'd be a really interesting research question. We actually have whole exome sequencing on a bunch of our patients that it'd be very interesting to look at sort of variants in the COPA gene if they might present a little bit differently within our patients. There, there's a question also about um, should you be, you know, we're, we, we talked about pneumonia and RA, we talked about ILD and RA and both are bad players and whatnot. Should we be as concerned um, with other uh, chronic lung diseases, organizing pneumonia, bronchiectasis, chronic pleural disease, patients who had antecedent venous thromboembolic events involving the lungs, are those as equally bad 
Or well, I think that's I think that's the next frontier in lung disease research and RA and other rheumatic diseases. Um, we don't really know, and I will say we just completed a systematic review about bronchiectasis and RA, and it's actually pretty common even in patients that don't have ILD. And I'm sure you probably have some examples of patients with bronchiectasis and you know, they can really get some recurrent infections and be difficult to treat and be hospitalized quite a bit. And um, I think there's a big unmet need there. And certainly I'm sure you have a few patients with really refractory serositis with pericardial effusions, pleural effusions, and um, those are a bit more in common, but if they happen, it's usually quite dramatic. So yes. a lot more to learn. Um, I wanna ask you about a presentation that you had at ACR um, two ACRs ago about your review of your database in, in Boston uh, and, and the association of um, RA-associated lung diseases in seropositive and seronegative. I was a bit surprised. Um, I always assumed that this is a strongly seropositive um, complication of RA, but your data suggested otherwise. Is that true? Well, as the background, we had reviewed all of the clinically obtained CT scans and really phenotyped them for any RA-related lung disease, which included pleural disease, bronchiectasis, and ILD. Um, and we certainly expected the antibodies to really be strongly associated with all of those. And um, we actually found that uh, a similar proportion of patients with seronegative RA had those on clinically indicated chest imaging. Um, so it was a little bit counter um, to what we expected, but I think it is an important finding that if patients have seronegative RA, you know, these diagnoses are still on the table. It doesn't rule out that they can't have ILD and bronchiectasis, et cetera. Yeah, that's, I think that's very interesting because um, we do get consults and, um, and maybe having such strict rules about what could be and couldn't be based on severity of RA or seropositivity may not be as strong as uh, I was taught in, in, um, in my training. Um, you talked about several times about inflammatory looking CTs um, and equated that with ground glass. Is that what we should take from a ground glass appearance? Does that mean that there's underlying inflammation or how else would you identify inflammation on CT? Um a good question as well. I'd say ground glass is probably the most non-specific of findings. Um, certainly it could just be atelectasis, could be post-viral. Um, you know, certainly it could end up being fibrosis in the end. So um, I, I think it's kind of difficult to hang your hat on that. Um, you know, certainly kind of more uh, consolidation type features would be more inflammatory. Um, sort of the... Um, uh, plural sparing has thought to be inflammatory as well. Um, but I, I did say that uh, this is why you have to have, you know, a, a radiologist or a pulmonologist in your back pocket, preferably both, who you can really run cases by because sometimes you look at the, the scan and it looks pretty scary and then you call them and they're not scared and vice versa. So I think it's good to have that kind of network. Yeah. Um, Art Weinstein reminds us that ILD patients without RA will often be seropositive, both RF and yep. PCP. Do you have any insights about how our rheumatologist should handle such consults? Yeah, I think that's also the next frontier. I think kind of obviously the more you look, the more you find, but um, 
there's this new concept of uh, interstitial pneumonia with autoimmune features uh, and pulmonologists are privy to it to check antibodies and often they find it and they send them to us and we don't think they have a disease at least yet. So certainly some people do progress over time. Some of it's many years though. Um, so I think this is sort of another kind of bridge of specialties between uh, patients with, that clearly have a inflammatory or fibrotic lung disease, but with, with autoimmune features that aren't necessarily diseases that we would treat yet. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, I must say that I've been a bit of a butthead in the past getting those consults. You know, oh, the guy has OA and ILD and they find RF or CCP. I'm sorry, he doesn't have RA, but I wasn't really considering the fact of what he might have, that this might be the warning sign that this is could be preclinical disease by the uh, by finding the seropositivity. Yeah. It can be part and parcel of the chronic lung disease, but to say that they don't have or won't have uh, inflammatory arthritis in the future probably isn't right. Yeah. So I have a question uh, for you, Jack. Yeah. Could you talk about what your thoughts are about um, COVID pneumonia and sort of post sequela of COVID and RA patients and is this something you've encountered as far as patients after COVID with either lung symptoms or fibrosis? And uh, I can't say that I've seen any of it in my patients. Mm -hmm. uh, our patient, and, and I'm talking about at my particular center at UT Southwestern, um, myself and two other practitioners, we have very, very few cases of COVID. Now we have a bunch that have been enrolled in the Global Rheumatology Alliance Registry. Um, you know, patients who were test positive, who were infected, very few in the hospital, uh, very few with, you know, really bad lung disease. But there are reports, as you, as you uh, that you sort of into your question, um, that of patients who will have a chronic post-COVID pneumonia sequelae that involves the lungs. And, um, but it's, it's, to me, that seems part of a hodgepodge of post-COVID sequelae. And, uh, I think it's a little bit like managing um, RA complications or even managing overlap disease. Um, basically, you treat what you got, meaning if they get to the point that they're symptomatic, then they're going to have to be co-managed by pulmonary and you with all, all that's necessary. And you may have to adjust your RA medicines that were working very well. But I must say, I've seen very little of it. I think that... Um, um, that's a, I'd love to see a great report on that. I really haven't seen much. Yeah. Uh, and we certainly haven't presented much on room now. And although we put a lot of stuff out about COVID in our patients, um, I, I think clearly the message is our patients generally have done very well is our patients who are not well controlled that do badly, especially with autoimmune disease, uh, more so than inflammatory arthritis and patients on rituximab. That seems to be a new consistent story. Patients receiving no therapy and patients receiving sulfasalazine maybe at higher risks. Uh, I think that those are the takeaways that I, I would, uh, and again, the behavior of COVID in our patients when they do get it is a lot like when they get pneumonia. Um, uh, otherwise it, it can, it can be deadly. And, and uh, on top of our patients, not very good. Um, well, I hang out with a lot of pulmonologists and they're seeing a lot of post COVID fibrosis, of course. And you do wonder whether this is going to generate antibodies and, you know, have, rheumatic sequela, you know, well down the line, unfortunately, in the wake of the acute phases. So, so that's a good, I mean, I'm glad that you, uh, you're, you're plugged in where you are and you're, you're running with those pulmonologists. Um, is that something we should be doing more of? Having combined clinics, having better crosstalk, 
I don't. I think before combined clinics, I didn't think. I don't think that the crosstalk between pulmonary and and rheumatology has always been very good. And what can we do to improve that? Well, there's no one answer, but um, I think showing that. I think once they realize that some of our medications can help the lung and then vice versa, some of their medications can help ours. I think that's really um, where things intersect. So I think repurposing the antifibrotics within fibrotic lung diseases within rheumatology patients and then vice versa, you know, repurposing things like rituximab um, or tocilizumab, for instance, in our, in, in our patients for lungs, I think that is probably the way to get things on the right page. I think we've got a lot to talk about together. Uh, I don't know. We It's going to be hard to put together clinics that would work for every site and whatnot, but it wouldn't be hard for people to sit and have our rheumatology pulmonary version of a tumor board, you know, once a month and your two cases, my two cases, and let's see what the, what the, um, the, the group think um, can add to the management or understanding of what's going on. I think that would be a great, advance for both pulmonary and for rheumatology, certainly for rheumatology. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd like you to end with um, a patient of mine, uh, about 70 years old with RA, clear-cut RA for about 15 years, doing well at the time. He was just on methotrexate. It was almost the, the beginning of the biologic year. Went to his pulmonologist because he had some cough, told he had interstitial lung disease and that he wasn't going to live eight years and should get his affairs in order. Um, you know, I guess the question is, if we find ILD or the pulmonologist tell us about ILD, you know, um, where can we be appropriate in our guidance to patients about how much they need to worry? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the risk stratification and prognostication is uh, really important. Um, and I think as I illustrated in my talk that there's so many subtypes and, you know, some that are progressive, some that are very slowly progressive, some never progress that I think it's a bit hard to just say you got ILD and here's your, you know, median sur expectant survival. Um, you know, as far as features that are prognostic, certainly worse imaging features, worse symptoms, you know, worse functional ability, and then, you know, spirometric features in particular FVC and then obviously DLCO. Um, so if and there are tools, I think it's called the gap tool that can actually risk stratify patients based on pretty simple, based on um, uh, spirometry and demographic features. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good question. And it's one we have to struggle with often about when do you worry versus reassure and often people right in that gray zone. Well, that concludes this episode of Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I want to thank Jeff Sparks from Brigham and Women's for uh, being co-moderator and also being um, really the better half of this <laughs> presentation. Um, I want to, um, I guess, show everyone what's coming up next week. Um, if I can do that here, I'm going to share share the screen of uh, uh, of what's happening next week on. Um, so we're going to have spondyloarthritis. Nigel Haroon from University of Toronto, uh, Artie Cavanaugh, Dr. Robert Wong talking about um, iritis and B27. And then this is the um, um, the following week, or actually the schedule is on our website. You can see what's going on there. So thanks for participating. We'll see you next week on Tuesday Night Rheumatology. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you.